You're listening to an episode of the C19 podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and future through the United States in the long 19th century. We are an official production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Disclaimer. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the opinions of the respective individuals' employers, nor the official opinions of C19. This episode of the C19 podcast is brought to you from Université Paris Diderot, located on the bank of the River Seine in the Paris River Gauche area. I am Azalina Flint, doctoral candidate of the University of East Anglia, and I'm chairing this podcast with two of my students from the Brilliant Club programme. We're here for the first international conference on May Alcott Nierica, a little-known 19th century painter, author and social activist. I'm Poppy Henson of Litcham School and I've recently completed a supracurricular programme with Azalina through the Brilliant Club. The Brilliant Club is a UK charity that sponsors PhD students to support pupils from low participation backgrounds with their university applications. Following the completion of my research paper on Cristina Rossetti, which has been selected for the Brilliant Club's publication The Scholar, Azalina invited me to attend this conference. Recovering May Alcott Nierica's life and works is funded by Chase a consortium of universities from the east of England who sponsor doctoral candidates to convene such events as this one. I'm Amelia Platt, also from Litcham School, and I recently completed Azalina's supra-curricular programme, How to Study a 19th Century Poetess, which examines how far we should consider canonical status, critical neglect, biographical history and editorial intervention when recovering the work of a 19th century female poet. Poppy and I have received funding from the British Association of Americanists and Litcham School to attend this conference. I was excited to learn about another female artist who has been underrepresented in the canon of 19th century literature and art, as my final research paper was on the little-known British poet Amy Levy. So, why are we here? We want to tell the world about May Alcott Nierica, and who might you ask is she? The first half of her name is already familiar. She is the youngest sister of Louisa May Alcott, author of the classic 1868 young adult novel Little Women. Of the four iconic March sisters, May is the autobiographical exemplar for the youngest, a painter nicknamed Little Raphael, whose real name is Amy, an anagram for May. Yet the association between May Alcott and Amy March is problematic, and that's one of the reasons why we've decided to host this event. May is too often thoughtlessly conflated with her fictional counterpart. The same thing cannot be said for her father, the transcendentalist philosopher Bronson Alcott, as May continues to lie in the shadow of Amy, we're attempting to bring the historical May to the fore through this conference. This is an integral time of recovery for the Alcott women. Eve LaPlante's landmark double biography of Louisa May Alcott and her mother, Abigail May, published in 2012, has exposed the fact that the achievements of the lesser-known Alcotts merits further consideration. 
Among the three forgotten sisters, Anna, Elizabeth and May, May Alcott-Nierica stands out for her prolific life writing, her achievements as a painter and her independent spirit as a woman who travelled across Europe to pursue a career in art in the late 19th century. Born in 1840, May was named after her mother, with whom she maintained a particularly close bond. Known in childhood as Abby, she later adopted her middle name, for the more elegant and artistic impression that it gave. An inspiring painter, she began her studies in the School of Fine Arts in Boston in 1859. In between caring for her mother and co-running the Alcott household with her sister Louisa, she travelled to London to study independently at the National Gallery in 1871 and 1873. It was here that she attracted the attention of John Ruskin, who, if contemporary newspaper accounts are to be trusted, described her as the only artist worthy to copy Turner. Her achievements were not limited to painting, and she also co-authored an unpublished novel, An Artist's Holiday, with her sister, Louisa, which was inspired by her London correspondence. While May spent considerable time in London, we are keen to trace her movements in the French capital, where she came to study in 1876. During her time in Paris, she became something of a social activist, debating the slavery problem with her southern classmates while producing an openly abolitionist painting, The Prince of Timbuktu, also known as the Crimean War Soldier. May reached the peak of her career in 1877 when she became the only American woman to be admitted to the Paris Salon, thereby superseding her iconic American contemporary, the foundational Impressionist painter Mary Cassatt. Following her whirlwind courtship with Swiss banker Ernst Nierica, May completed her most famous anti-slavery painting, La Negresse, which was admitted to the Paris Salon in 1879. This year also saw the publication of a manual, Studying Art Abroad, which provided practical guidance for other expatriate women who were banned from studying at the Beaux-Arts on account of their gender. Yet tragically, this most prolific year of her life was also her last. It is in May's untimely death that we ascertain the origins of her historical and scholarly neglect. But it is in the unknown potentiality of her life that makes her such a captivating figure. Her life story would make a compelling subject for a biopic, should such a project be undertaken. The very cause of her death speaks to her status as a woman who is both representative of the period in which she lived and who somehow transcended the restrictions that were placed upon her. At a time when postpartum death accounted for 4% of the mortality rate among American women, May died of postpartum meningitis following the birth of her daughter, Lulu, in 1879. Nevertheless, the fact that she gave birth to a child at the age of 39 while working as a professional artist is testament to her status as a firebrand. It is in her aspirations that she speaks most strongly to women of the day as an ardent social activist who is unafraid to pursue her own success, personally, professionally and most significantly, internationally. That's why we're meeting here in Paris as a group of scholars who span both sides of the Atlantic as well as the European continent. Over the next half hour, we will consider issues of recovery and canonization relating to May Alcott-Nierica. How far has the contribution she made to the arts been overshadowed by her more famous relatives? What work can be done to bring her to the fore? 
Why is her vision as an artist significant? We are joined today by Elise Hooper, author of the 2017 historical novel, The Other Alcott. Professor Marlo Daly Galliano of Lewis Clark State College, a scholar of Neerica's unpublished fiction, and Professor Lauren Haymayer of Texarkana College, who considers the feminist and abolition implications of Neerica's art. Elise, the powerful voice of May Alcott Neerica is at the centre of your novel. How did you go about crafting and creating this voice? So it really was, uh, it was combination through several different efforts to figure out what her motivation was and really um, what what she would have sounded like. And I think she was a really optimistic spirit, a real adventurous. So I tried to draw those types of qualities into my narrative about her. The other Alcott is a real story, obviously, with elements of fiction woven in. And I wondered, when writing the story, did you ever struggle to draw the line between history and fiction? No, it was actually usually pretty clear when I when there were gaps and and I could imagine. Um, and the times where I I did have a little worry about um, more making composite characters or sometimes condensing my timeline. I had spoken at one point with uh, Lisa Adams, the director of education at Orchard House, and she reminded me that I was working on a novel and that I really just needed to remember what would best serve my story. And so with her blessing, I did really embrace that idea and really tried to write a novel that would appeal to people who knew nothing about the Alcotts and, and maybe would learn some stuff about them, and then to people who did know about the Alcotts and uh, would hopefully appreciate a new look at them. Your book is a really intimate portrayal of the complicated relationship between May and Louise Alcott. You explore in your book the possibility of jealousy between the sisters and I wondered is there any historical foundation to this idea? There is no documented case of a long estrangement between the two sisters. That is absolutely a work of fiction by my part. But at the same time there are hints of tension between them in their published letters And those letters are letters that still survive because actually Louisa didn't worry that they reflected badly. So the fact that she thought that those were fine and and they're filled maybe with a few snarky remarks back and forth at each other, I thought, well, who knows what maybe she burned. (laughs) And so to me, that was an entree into imagining um, a more complicated, I would argue, realistic relationship. I have yet to meet a pair of sisters who get along 24 hours a day, seven days a week for their entire lives. And, and I think it's a, it's a rich relationship that is fraught with deep emotion, both positive and negative. Um, when reading the novel, one of my, my favorite parts was that it offers a really fascinating insight into the world of female artists um, around the latter part of the 19th century. And yet many of these you know, groundbreaking artists have been lost to history. And I wonder, do you believe there's a particular reason for this? And how can we sort of bring them back? Oh, goodness. That is such a good question. Uh, When I was in Boston last fall, I went to the Museum of Fine Arts, eager to see some of the works by the women in my book. And I had my little list and I marched up to that gallery and there were five paintings by Mary Cassatt, one by Cecilia Bowe, and that was it. So I went down to information, asked where they were. They were all back in the archives. 
much of their work is just as deserving as many of the men who are all over those galleries. Um, I think we can only hope to see in the next few years just a continued interest and maybe pressure by the public to see more of these women and see their work because it is beautiful. Uh, there are several exhibits on tour right now. Uh, there's a big Frida Kahlo show coming to London, and there's a tour of uh, many of the women in my novel, The Other Alcott, in Massachusetts right now. I hope public interest drives uh, greater funding and sort of public support for, for more of these types of exhibits and, and these women living in permanent collections, not just traveling around in temporary exhibits. That's actually brought me really uh, neatly to my, my final question that I wanted to ask you. This is a really exciting time regarding May Alcott Newica, Life and Works. Obviously, we have the conference today, your book. There was also the novel Little Woman in Blue by Janine Atkins, which also explores May Alcott Newica's life. And I wanted to ask you, why would you urge listeners to discover May Alcott Newica? And what makes her, in your opinion, relevant to a modern day audience? I think that I think that readers and listeners can find so many connections to May. I think she represents a really optimistic force in a time when uh, women were discouraged from being more ambitious. So I think that even though women now can go to art school, we can vote, we can have bank accounts in our names, and we have many advances, I think there are still things that hold us back that are timeless, uh, anxiety over uh, creating one's own work and putting it out for public consumption. And, and these are all things that I think May is so inspiring for in that her first foray really into publication was met with negative reviews, and yet she persisted. I think that people will hopefully find inspiration and, and enjoy this optimism and adventurous spirit she brought. I, what I found very inspirational about what uh, was that she you know, she had a career and she had a family and right. she balanced both. And I think in many ways she sort of foreshadows the modern woman and like the challenges that women face today. She certainly put up a good fight for it. And I think for that, she certainly can interest many people. We are now joined by Professor Marlo Daly-Galliano of Lewis Clark State College, a scholar of Nurika's unpublished fiction. Marlo. Can you tell us about the sisters' collaborative novel, An Artist's Holiday? I know it was inspired by May's time in London, but which of them decided to transfer their letters into a novel, and why did they choose to do that? Well, actually, An Artist's Holiday was written in 1873, and I wouldn't characterize it as a novel per se. It's more of a travelogue or a memoir, so I think it falls a little bit more solidly into the realm of nonfiction than fiction, although that's, that could be debated. And um, while there is a basis uh, for some of the events that May Alcott recounts in, um, in this work, in the letters that she and her sister Louisa sent back uh, home from Europe. Most of the events she's writing about in an artist's holiday are from her later trip in 1873 on her own. Why did Louisa and May put their letters together? What do you think they wanted their readers to take away from an artist's holiday, knowing it was quite an obscure idea for a literary work? 
yeah, I guess it is It is rather um, obscure. It would probably be a little bit more common in the 19th century than it is today, so I don't think it was a crazy uh, idea that was out there. One of the things that's unusual about the manuscript and that's difficult about it is that it does feature the two sets of handwriting. Louisa May Alcott's handwriting is on two of the sketches of the nine, and the rest are in May Alcott's writing. And we're not quite sure why it's just those two sections that are in Louisa May Alcott's handwriting and the other seven in May Alcott's handwriting. I think it indicates a level of collaboration, but again, it's hard to ascertain, or to ascertain exactly where that line breaks down, who did what. Um, I think, you know, if there's a little bit more of May Alcott's voice throughout. That's the voice that I really hear in reading the, these um, pages. But certainly, they did work together to a certain extent. Can I ask, why did they never publish An Artist's Holiday? That's a great question, and it's one that um, I'm still trying to answer definitively. There is some mention in the journals and the letters about um, publishing this work, and yet we can find no record that it's been published in its entirety at all. We do know that certain sections of the manuscripts, such as um, How We Met the Shah, were published in periodicals at the time. And what fascinates me about this is that they're attributed just to Louisa May Alcott, who would have been the better known author in the period, when clearly May Alcott had a serious involvement or perhaps total ownership of that writing. And then I guess the other reason uh, it hasn't been published um, in modern times is that there are a lot of challenges associated with the complexity and the messiness of the manuscript. Is there much controversy as well that it should be properly published today? Uh, <laughs> well, it's certainly something that I would love to see happen. It's a very rich text. Uh, when I first discovered it, um, in 2011, in the Houghton Library, someone asked me, is it a good read? And I said, well, yes, it's a great read. It's fascinating. It's funny. Uh, it's charming. And uh, yet, because it's messy, there would be a lot of issues in thinking about how do I publish this? We've got two sets of handwriting. In some cases, there are two versions of the different chapters, and it's not necessarily clear that one is the definitive version. Um, some of the handwriting is quite difficult to read. And then there are a number of unanswered questions. There's a big case uh, that's mentioned in this manuscript that we'd have to do some legal research on. There are a lot of literary references that would need to be tracked down and uh, historical references. So it would be a big project to publish it with any type of critical apparatus. I understand there may have been some rivalry between Louisa and May, and their relationship was complicated. How did the novel impact their relationship? I think that this was primarily a positive experience, working together when we look at the later uh, writing about an artist's holiday from Louisa May Alcott. We don't see some of the kind of envy or bitterness that you see in some of the journal entries. Um, I know she she loved her sister, Louisa May Alcott loved her sister very much. And yet, 
Uh, she sometimes has these snarky comments in her journals and her letters. Oh, May gets to do that. Um, and I work so hard. I don't see that as much surrounding an artist holiday. So I feel um, that that may be a place where they came together and were thinking about moving forward with right. their relationship. And finally, what challenges did you experience exactly when organizing and reading an artist holiday? <laughs> it's it's really a mess, and you should look at it um, through Harvard's Mirador uh, because there are some pages that are beautiful and easy to read and others where uh, she's writing in two different directions. There are some letters mixed in. Uh, a few of the pages seem like they may be out of order. So um, anyone who wants to work closely with it would have to spend some long hours just figuring out, okay, what pages do I need to look at? What pages should I leave out? Um, I do think it would be a project that would be worthwhile to do because, as I mentioned, it's a good read. So we're joined now by Professor Lauren Haymeyer of Texarkana College, who considers the feminist and abolitionist implications of Nurika's art. And Lauren, you consider the term genius and talents in the work of Louisa May Alcott and May Alcott Nurika. And within the 19th century, the term genius is often applied to men, especially among the transcendentalists. Can you explain how May's understanding of the role of the artist complements the vision of the transcendentalists while at the same time perhaps challenging their assumptions about gender? Well, May knew that the evidence of a sublime experience was important to transcendentalists back home. And when she was in Switzerland, she had such an experience. She climbed Mount St. Bernard with a friend. And when they got to the top, there was an, a huge electrical storm. And that fit the definition of seeing nature uh, combined with awe and fear. Ruskin had even written that a mountaintop experience was essential to being labeled a genius. So now she had evidence that perhaps she was one. And you can tell she cared about communicating that to the transcendentalists back home because she wrote a nice long letter to them talking about it. So she, she understood that that was marking her as being touched by the divine. Is there any way um, that would have been something that would have surprised the transcendentalists coming from May? Or do you think um, this was something that, was, that a woman was able to embrace within the transcendentalist movement? Um, the definition of genius had been expounded upon by Emerson, and he did extend that definition a little bit, but not necessarily applying it to women. Um, I do think her father, Bronson, being a dad, was like, sure, my daughter's a genius. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the others, like Hawthorne, would have really, really questioned that. Yeah. And within the community in Concord, was May someone who was known to be precocious, do you think? Um, would people have been more open to thinking of her as, as a genius or perhaps thinking of her as a bit of an upstart? What's your view on that? Well, her art certainly had a very strong arc from being sort of abysmal to being really a master at what she did. And it took that trip to Europe in order to change her art. Um, perhaps because Louisa had gone before her with success, the people in Concord were open to the possibility. And in fact, there's a, there's a letter by a citizen of Concord that talks, that says, 
May was a real artist. The, the younger sister is a real artist. So there was a feeling that she might amount to something. Yeah. That's interesting because in your talk, you were you discussed how she embraced the idea of genius more than Louisa did. So was that recognized within the Concord community then, that she was more of an artist in the perhaps more traditional vocational sense of the definition? Well, there was a big difference between being a dilettante and being a true artist. Being a dilettante, or what is today referred to as a Sunday painter, was very accepted for women in the 19th century. But what May, what I admire about May, was her desire to reach much higher than that and to prove it to everyone else. And the way you do that as an artist is through really hard work. And there is an account in one of her letters of the amount of work she produced after she was married. And it's quite prodigious. Um, you know, an artist can't just say, well, I think I'll paint two hours today. They have to get up at 8 a.m. and paint till 5. And, and she had learned that, that you have to really, really apply yourself if you're going to reach higher. And what I argue in my paper is that she reached higher by reaching up the pyramid of what was called the hierarchy of genres. So in that day and age, they believed that the subject matter, the type of painting, had a hierarchy, with the most important one at the top being history and the least important at the bottom being still life. She started with a still life at the salon, and she ends up with a portrait close to the top that she imbues with historical references. That, that, of course, is an interesting contrast with Louisa because Louisa follows the genre literature, she writes for money, and she has that desire to kind of publish the serious novels, the realist novels like work, right. but they always get sidelined. So it's interesting that May is able to really dedicate her time to that vision and, and going up. Well, I think that's a personality difference. Yeah. Uh, one of May's, the scholar of May, the woman who wrote sort of the original book, her name Kickner. She says, May won't, doesn't want to sacrifice for anyone. And I think that's true. I think if someone is going to devote themselves exclusively to their art and be a genius, they have to say, this comes first. It causes problems in relationships for the, those people. And we have a string of examples in history. Picasso was not a reliable family man. <laughs> so... For a woman to embrace that and say, this has got to be the most important thing, it's really a very modern thing and a bold thing for me to do. She was bold in everything in her life. Um, I loved one account where she writes, she's visiting some castle in Europe, and she writes down, there was a sign that said, don't go beyond this point, danger. So of course I went around. And to <laughs> me, that really sums up her whole personality. Like what you were saying just now about embracing genius as, as a woman and how that's a daring thing to do. Of course, the title of your paper is Let the World Know You Are Alive. And you started out by saying that, that that's a quote from Abigail Alcott, yes. May's mother. Yes. And I'd really like to ask, how far do you think May's pursuit of genius as a woman came from Abba? Because another thing you said is Bronson's influence as a genius might be admired but not desired. So you touched on the idea of, of May pursuing a kind of different kind of genius and we have Abba at the beginning. I was wondering if you could expand, expand on that. Well, of course, um, Abigail was um, 
quite a woman in herself. Um, sort of like the first, one of the first social workers. She embraced social change. And what I like about that quote was, to me, it spoke to both those women. They were both noisy in their own way. Um, they did let the world know they were alive. And they weren't going to take a back seat or be quiet. Um, they, they both, in a sense, had to decide what made dedication for a woman to genius. Louisa decided you had to be celibate, essentially. And May said, no, I'm going to be able to combine that if I find the right man. And she believed she had found the right man. And I actually argue that would have worked because if you look at the list of what she painted the year after she married, it doesn't slow her down a bit. In fact, if anything, she picks up the pace. Could you talk a little bit more about the idea of celibacy and female genius, actually, because it's not something that's necessarily required of a male artist that you know, he has to sacrifice his married life, and yet it was a huge kind of uh, issue for Louisa. It was oh, a conscious choice. Absolutely. Um, so I teach history, so yeah. I've got, I'm going to go at it from that angle. Um, there was a quote I read years ago that said that when a man and woman made love in the 19th century, death sat on the woman's side of the bed. And that was true, right? There's no birth control. Uh, childbirth is hazardous. Uh, when you married your daughter off, you knew she'd probably be pregnant within a year and you might lose her. So since there's no birth control, you might have one child or you might have 15. And if you have child after child after child, you cannot balance career. I do believe that May delayed marriage long enough. And if you look at the examples of some of the other women who were very ambitious from that period, they delayed marriage too. They delay marriage so they won't have 15 children. They delay marriage so they may only have one or two. So they can pursue other things. And in fact, it's a big question in the 19th century. How can a woman fulfill herself? Um, you know, the United Community and some of those other utopian communities addressed, tried to find a solution to that problem. Because it won't be found until much later in the 20th century, right? <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so, what do you think? In what way does May stand out in her approach to the issue then of, of marriage and, and genius? In what way can we look to her now and, and say she was ahead of the time? Well, I think she was ahead of the time in that she made the decision all right, I want to do this thing. Women aren't supposed to be geniuses, but I don't believe it. I've seen Mary Cassatt's work. I've seen Rosa Bonaire's work. Maybe I can do this too. What are the signs that I can do this? Well, I've had a sublime experience. I'm a wonderful copyist. That's the first rung on the ladder of becoming a fine, fine artist. So I believe that I can do this too. Now, what is the way I can make this happen? but also find love. And she really had, I think, found the answer, except for the lack of 20th century antibiotics. I think she had found the answer. That's I a, like to think she yeah, had. I do as well. I think that's a fantastic note to end on. Thank you so All much. Right. Thank you. I'm now joined by our keynote speaker, John Matteson, Distinguished Professor of English at John Jay College and Pulitzer Prize winning biographer of Eden's Outcasts. 
John's research focuses on the influence of Bronson Alcott on the Alcott women, but today's keynote, sponsored by the University of East Anglia, considers how Nerika's painting expanded on the achievements of her father, Ruskin and Turner, when addressing such radical issues as the abolition of the slave trade. So John, your work considers Ruskin's commendation of May as a Turner copyist, and the role of the copyist is somewhat contested in 19th century American mm. culture, and you mentioned in your keynote that Emerson said, in our fine arts, not imitation but creation is the aim. And this is interesting because it came out of the lecture on women, and uh, in this lecture he said, the proper role of women is as mediators between those who have knowledge and those who want it, and talking about women as kind of secondary teachers mm. and not kind of uh, assuming the role of the artist. Um, but on the other hand, Nathaniel Hawthorne uh, in The Marble Thorn says that the copyist actually achieves the ideal of the great master centuries after his own earthly hand, that other tool, had turned to dust. So there's an right. elevated idea of the copyist for Hawthorne. And yeah. um, So what are the dangers and or advantages of considering May as a copyist and evaluating her artistic achievements in light of the link with Ruskin and Turner? And are there ways in which she expands on Turner's vision, achieving his ideal, as Hawthorne said, would say, centuries after his own earthly hand had turned to dust? Well, that's quite a mouthful <laughs> of a question, I have to say. <laughs> but uh, I, I think um, the status of May Alcott as a copyist is a bit misleading. Uh, because you know, one of the things that we observed in the conference today was that it's possible to be creative as a copyist. Um, Mayalka is not striving simply to be an imitator of, uh, of J.M.W. Turner. What she's really doing is she's trying to uh, expand upon the initial inspiration. She makes it her own by changing the values of the light and changing some of the curves and the um, in the limbs and and uh, and trunks of trees and so forth. So um, it's interesting in that she appears to be adopting this subordinate role, of sort of acolyte of Turner, the the devoted copyist, the the follower. Whereas in fact she's subverting that status and she's really doing it to uh, to expand her own capacities as a, as an artist, to express her own vision, to express her own values. So uh, she's a little tricky. And, uh, and in a very appealing way. That's a lovely thought. Um, so in what way do you think she kind of expands on Turner's vision then? Well, she expands on Turner's vision in some rather interesting ways. And uh, one of the best ways of observing this is to look at the way in which uh, May Alcott responded in her art to slavery, uh, as opposed to the way that Turner did. Uh, Turner comes up with a sweeping almost blood-stained epic um, masterpiece called The Slave Ship, which is tremendously emotionally moving. It's sublime and it's powerful, but it also, in a way, dehumanizes the suffering of the slave because you can't really make out individual figures. You can't really relate to the tragedy in a sense because it's presented as so massive as to overpower the spirit and the, and the eye. Whereas May Alcott's approach is to give us an isolated figure of a female slave, very young, adolescent, um, physically vulnerable, sexually vulnerable, uh, and so she appeals to us through a sense of sympathy rather than the sublime. So it's a smaller treatment in one sense, but it's a larger treatment in another in that it takes the suffering of the individual and invites us to understand it from that point of view. And of course, sympathy is something that's had a lot of discussion in American studies, Absolutely. Uh, particularly in the work of Stowe. And 
kind of one criticism of sympathy that's often made is that it leads the viewer to believe that they're sharing in that experience yes. of, of the victim. Right. Um, and uh, I don't know, in what way do you think May's work, uh, does it challenge this yeah. notion, does it transcend that kind of problem? Yeah, well, I think um, different people might respond subjectively differently to that, mm. to that query. Um, my sense is that Stowe is not only cultivating sympathy, but she's cultivating sentiment in a way that is sometimes a little bit disingenuous, sometimes a little bit dishonest. And, uh, and yes, indeed, she ends up writing a bestseller uh, that uh, well-to-do white women can cry over in their parlors, but then never turn around and do anything to improve the social situation. Uh, I don't see... Um, May Alcott's painting as being something that cultivates sentiment. She makes us care, but I th dare I say in a more authentic way than, than a sentimental novel like um, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Your keynote foregrounds the influence of Bronson Alcott's ascetic tastes on his daughter as a man who paid close attention to interior design within his classroom. Bronson was also a keen landscape gardener, Nevertheless, May's correspondence sometimes pokes fun at the Concord Literati and her father in particular. How does May's painting reflect her complex relationship with her father? It's very interesting. I think that his uh, influence over her is more profound when she's quite young. Uh, if you go to her bedroom in Orchard House, you find uh, very meticulously traced uh, figures from antiquity, the classical gods and goddesses. And, uh, and that's really kind of Bronson's bailiwick. He loves reaching back into the distant past, seeking out classical models. Uh, and I think in those illustrations on her wall that she does probably in her very late teens or very early 20s, uh, she's subscribing to that kind of a sense of the artistic, that it has to be classical, it has to have affinities with antiquity or it doesn't really count. But what happens by the time she you know, gets into her 30s, which unfortunately is uh, you know, the last decade that she's able to experience, uh, she's crafting a different aesthetic, one that is in a sense romantic, but, um, but much more uh, artistically rich and original than anything that her father probably would have foreseen for her. And we benefit as viewers from that. You conclude your lecture, we should lament not that May was given the time to become a second turner, but that she had so few years in which to be May Alcott. What kind of a painter do you think May would have been had she lived, and what impact might she have had on the Parisian art scene in the late 19th century? Well, we're talking, of course, about the age of the Impressionists. We're talking about the era of Monet and Pizarro and Cezanne. And uh, there's very little doubt in my mind that as immersed as she was in the artistic culture, uh, May would have absorbed influence from those very daring and very sort of avant-garde movements. And we don't really see it that much in the, in the work that she was actually able to accomplish. But um, I, I'm really, really quite convinced that if she'd had more time, more opportunity to develop, um, there would have been a new uh, and exciting dimension to her art. Okay, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Oh, the pleasure's been mine. Thank you. Here in the city where May lived and died, you can't help but wonder what she would have achieved had she survived to continue her work as a painter and writer. 
I'm joined again by my brilliant club scholars, Poppy Henson and Amelia Platt. Tell us what has inspired you the most about this conference. Do you think May is a figure that warrants more attention and would you like to learn about her in school? The conference has been a fascinating insight into the world behind Little Women. May Alcott Nyerika is a figure who deserves much more recognition. May foreshadows the modern woman, balancing her career with having a family as well. She's an inspiration to the women in this age. May Alcott deserves to be seen in her own right, not just as the other Alcott, but as an independent, powerful woman who defied the constraints of society at the time. It has been a privilege to discover and perhaps understand her. Thank you for listening to the C19 podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag C19podcast or get in touch with us at C19podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? Check out our CFP on the C19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.